0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear from our staff talking about their favorite stories of 2022, like this one
1: from David Crabb. Saucy's real name is Selma, but my little gay mouth morphed it into Saucy. Saucy. <laughs>
0: That and more. But before that, we're heading into 2023. And you might or might not be a New Year's resolution kind of person. But an easy way to open up new possibilities for your year ahead is by learning about storytelling by giving it a try with a coach like me. All my services can be found at kevinallison.com. Whether you're interested in sharing stories like the ones you hear on Risk, or working on a speech to give, an essay to write, a podcast of your own to produce, or more. Or maybe a team you work with, a creative team, your crew, could use a custom-tailored workshop from our crew over at thestorystudio.org. So think about it. Learning more about sharing stories by jumping into it as a creative outlet is beneficial in so many ways. Again, you can find me at kevinallison.com and you can find our school at thestorystudio.org. We'll be right
2: back.
0: Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Say She She, behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Staff Picks 2022 Part 1. Because as you know, we do have our best of Risk episodes where we celebrate the stories that you all seem to like most. But some of our staff members wanted to say a few words about some of their favorite stories from this last year that weren't on one of those best-of collections. But first I want to say, hey, do you live in Philly or near Philly, or do you know anyone who lives around Philly? Pitch us a story for our March 2nd show. If you want to brainstorm on optional story themes, we have surprise twists, mesmerizing, or... Delicious, And everything you need to know about how to pitch us is at risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at Kevin at risk-show.com. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from David Crabb, whose story Groundhog Day was picked by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. You know, sometimes someone will share a story on the show that just happens to hit on some issue that's weighing on the mind of you as a risk listener right at that same time. And Jeff Barr is going to share about how David's story, Groundhog Day, was like that for him. But before that, we're going to hear from B. Van Slee, whose story was picked by another one of our editors, Hope Brush. And here she is now to tell us about that.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Hope here from the editing team. For this year's staff picks, the story that I've chosen is called Under Pressure by B. Vansley. And one of the reasons that I picked the story was because I was actually in the audience when she first shared it back over the summer at the hotel cafe. And I just remember how amazing it was to hear her tell it in real time and just experience it with all the other audience members that were there. And I just wanted everyone to have the chance to hear it one more time. So without further ado, here's B. Vansley.
4: So I was a curmudgeonly 30-something dude when I came out here about six years ago from Chicago. My wife and six-month-old son were going to fly out to meet me after I drove cross-country in our little red Toyota, whose name is Snowberry. Uh, (laughs) It was going to be a long road, but I didn't mind. I had... Our dog, Worf, to talk to and his big hairy paws to fiddle with. And listening to all of my music on the road out was like a long reflection of nice moments from eras past that I've liked to dwell on over the years. I sang along a lot, whether I could remember the words or not. Keeping us on the road with one hand, fiddling with Worf's paws with the other. Thinking about stuff, enjoying the landscape as it we gradually escaped the farmland and semi-industrial sprawl of the Midwest and got into the more interesting southwestern countryside. Mountains and the desert. It's so beautiful and shockingly green, possibly because of all the storms that had been raging around the area, like the one just ahead, staring me down like a gigantic angry gray monster waiting to devour me whole which it most certainly did (laughs) thunder and lightning sheets of rain slashing across the road the brush bent way down against the ground whipping around like crazy i've got the steering wheel grip with both hands just to keep us from getting blown off into oblivion which is when snowberry's low tire pressure light came on. i shut off the music didn't feel like i had a flat i didn't hear anything It seemed like a pretty good idea to make sure. Luckily, by the time I found an exit, the storm had started to die down. Then I found a gas station with an air pump, got out, put a quarter in the machine, grabbed the nozzle, had a look at my tires, realized I have no idea what I'm doing. You don't really need a car in Chicago. We'd only recently gotten Snowberry because we were going to be having a baby. I was in the middle of nowhere. The last thing I needed was to have my face blown off from overfilling a tire, or to have one explode while driving 90 miles an hour next to a canyon. I made eye contact with a cowpoke, gassing up over yonder, gave him the pantomime, (laughs) like, uh, hey, you know how to fill up a tire? But he just got in his truck and drove off, so I went into the marketplace to ask around, hey, do you know how to fill up a tire? But the clerks were all busy helping customers, and everyone else I asked just looked at me, a tattooed, scraggly-looking dude with a three-day beard and his shoes untied, like I was going to ask him for a ride to Burning Man or something. (laughs) Uh, So I ended up just going out and airing up the tires a little at a time until the light went off, drove to a nearby rest stop to make sure it stayed off, tossed the ball around for Wharf a bit, and then packed him back in, and we were on our way, all the way to the little rental that we had waiting for us in the valley, let myself in, had a look around, let Worf out into our new yard, which turned out to have this big, gorgeous lemon tree in it, then stretched out, ordered myself a nice, mediocre, but well-deserved pizza, and enjoyed the long journey's end. A few days later, my little family arrived, and a few weeks after that, the truck with all of our staff, and we settled into our fresh perspective. The thing is, there was a lot I'd been eager to leave behind in Chicago. I grew up at a time when the only real cultural touchpoint to transgender was a fictional serial killer in Silence of the Lambs. I'd told my wife when we first started dating, but by then I'd given up on the possibility of ever transitioning. I think coming out here was a way to try to come to terms with that, to start new in a place where there are mountains and the ocean, and to maybe escape some of the depression that had been chasing me for years. But the problem with gender dysphoria is that it's this inescapable physiological dissonance and persistent longing that only gets worse with time until it just becomes this undercurrent of dissatisfaction to everything. So after about a year of exploring LA and parenting and getting into the routine of things... I was again constantly complaining about airplanes and leaf blowers and sirens and price gouging, getting on the phone with the city about the bright light from the school beaming into my room all night. My life was very nice. I had my health, a great creative career, lovely little family, and I was proud to be a father. I Loved teaching my son stuff and watching him grow from a burbling infant to a hilarious toddler. But more and more of my psychic reality was being defined by all these assaults on my peace of mind that no one else seemed to really notice. Like all that stuff was getting wrapped up in the bitterness I felt being kept so far apart from the simple existential contentedness I imagine everyone else enjoys. And then I discovered here in California transition-related care is covered by insurance. (sighs) Maybe someday we'll be able to step into some sort of medical transformation pod that liquefies our mass and genetically reconstitutes us according to our preferred gender expressions. In the meantime, those of us so inclined face years of complicated surgeries and procedures as we grind slowly toward actualization, one painful milestone at a time. I cannot imagine a procedure intended for the extraction of information from an enemy of the state being more torturous than electrolysis. <laughs> Pretty early on, I had to go in for a revision for this one of a suite of uh, FFS procedures that I'd had at this clinic in Beverly Hills, one of which involved peeling back my scalp to like mess around with the shape of my skull. So uh, I'm laying on the table as the surgeon has this hook knife shoved way up my nostril as he's carving down the bone at the ridge of my nose with these really jerky, alarmingly (laughs) imprecise-seeming movements like cuts up and down. My whole face is numb, but all I can hear is my whole skull vibrating with the sound of this. And I'm doing my best to keep chill, but then um, the knife slips off the bone. (laughs) and stabs up into my nose meat. And I guess the anesthetic wasn't strong enough, because I scream in pain. The surgeon and his assistant freak out, scrambling to inject me with more stuff, blaming me somehow, while I'm lying there sobbing on the table, tears streaming down my face, you know, but still trying to stay as motionless as possible for fear of permanent disfigurement. on the less traumatizing side of my transition. I was going through this sort of second adolescence. A lot of trial and error, you know, stumbling through makeup and style and mannerisms, learning when not to play with my hair, how to reach for stuff without exposing my butt, and how not to wear stuff that might expose my butt. <laughs> my closet's full of what the hell was I thinking stuff I'm never ever gonna wear. I went through this sort of boho businesswoman phase. <laughs> I kept buying blazers, I no idea why. I work from home, <laughs> by the way. Blazers. Uh, there was some awkwardness reflected back at me, you know, furtive looks, straight-up double takes, and staring. I didn't care what anybody thought. I was just happy to finally be pursuing a version of something I'd been wishing for every single day of my life. But... It can be sort of distracting to be reminded of your otherness every time you go out, especially since the whole point of transitioning is to finally be comfortable in your own skin. So as horrible and tragic as this pandemic has been, for me, masks were sort of a boon. It was nice to be able to go out without worrying over the most troublesome area of my face. About a year into the pandemic, um, I had to go in for yet another... Excruciating laser treatment, a series of many in preparation for bottom surgery. Yay! Uh, um, I think I was on Mulholland, somewhere near Skirball, and uh, Snowberry's low tire pressure light came on again. It had been about five years since that time in the middle of the desert. Uh, I was running early, so I just pulled in the first gas station I saw. This time, the second I stepped out in my tan leather ankle boots and uh, this exact skirt, actually, by the way, and a loose-knit coral cardigan and my sparkly army green scoop neck, the machine just started up on its own. I looked over to the station just as this uh, saggy ag man in a purple polo shirt stepped out and started heading toward the car. He stopped about halfway, I guess, because... Um, He wasn't wearing a mask, and he saw that I was, and just stood there with his hands backward on his hips, looking vaguely bored. And he said, did it come on? (laughs) Uh, Yes, it did, Uh, I I said. And I I smiled with my eyes and thanked him for activating the machine without me having to pay for it. Grabbed the nozzle, gathered up my skirt, crouched down by one of my tires, and realized I still have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) So... Uh, Yeah, we'd gotten Snowberry's tires completely replaced about a year after moving here. It just hadn't come up, you know. But this time, I had someone to ask. But when I stood up to go over to the station to ask the man, uh, I saw he'd come around to just on the other side of my car to watch me, still looking vaguely bored with his hands backward on his hips. That surprised me. So I just crouched down and without asking him anything. I'm looking at the tire, I didn't really see anything to uh, indicate how much pressure to put in, and I'm looking at the nozzle, and this big hand comes into view, and then a voice in my ear says, "The numbers come up." The guy had come around to crouch right next to me, and he's pointing at the little gauge thing on the nozzle. I said, "Oh, okay, yeah, right." Um, and I went to put it on the tire to show him I knew what he meant, hoping he'd go away, but then he grabbed hold of the nozzle right over my hands, and he squeezed it. He squeezed my fingers to activate it, and then just held me there like that as air blew into the tire. It took a second for me to realize what the hell was going on. Um, I guess I'd never gotten around to imagining something like this happening. The last time I had to do this, I couldn't get someone to help me if I'd been on fire. If I'd gone flying off a cliff somewhere in the middle of Arizona, it would have been their fault. And now here's this big man leaning right up against me with his big dumb hands held right over both of mine. And um, I sort of just froze. I felt pretty stupid for letting it get to that point. It was sort of validating, I guess. But thinking about it later, I could see him tracking closer and closer every time I looked away, like it had been his intent all along to somehow touch the fashionably appointed lady that had just pulled into his gas station. It makes me think about all the cautionary lessons that I'd missed out on, that girls are generally obliged to learn at a young age one way or another, right? Fair trade-off for a life of male privilege, maybe? He let go of me after a minute and then stood up to watch me as I went around airing up my tires, trying not to look at him, and then he wandered back into the station, and I drove away, and that was it. So yeah, you're probably thinking, ah, (laughs) a story of how Bea arrived in LA, her first crash course into what it is to be a woman in this world. And you're right, sort of, Um, as a definitive demarcation between my male and female life, it's pretty hard to deny. But I don't like to give such a skeezy experience credit for my actualization, and I don't have to, because just a little while later, I was out for an evening walk with my son, who's now six, through our little neighborhood. Um, The pandemic had started to die down again. (laughs) Uh, Mask restrictions were being lifted again. It was good timing for me. I felt like I was done hiding anyway. There was this tall hedge wall just up ahead. Um, and as we approached, this old man popped into view from the other side with a sort of halting step backward as uh, he swung open the tailgate to his SUV. Uh, it almost knocked him over, but he caught himself and then just stood there staring at this handful of groceries he had laid out in his trunk. And he had this little fold-up walker in there too. Can I help you with these? I said, and he said, oh, hi, he hadn't seen me there. Um, And I gave him my nicest smile, and I said, do you need a hand with these? And he said, oh, no, thank you. Uh, That's okay. Uh, But even though he looked, like, really delighted by the offer, and so I said, are you sure? His driveway looked, you know, really steep. At this point, my son had edged up, like, right up to the trunk of the car, and he pointed at this little stack of multicolored sponges. I can get these, he said, (laughs) my little six-year-old son. Uh, The old man laughed and gave him this big ecstatic smile. And he said, thank you, oh, thank you. Looking back and forth between us, he pointed at his house and he said, oh, my wife will be coming out in a minute to help me. I said, okay, Uh, looking at his house, um, hoping to see his wife walking out, you know. But just before we continued on our way, the old man grasped me gently on the arm. And uh, (laughs) he uh, gave my son another huge ecstatic smile. And he said... You have a good mother, (laughs) thank you.
5: Happy holidays everybody. This is your Risk episode editor Jeff Barr and I'm here to share a story with you that David Crabb shared way back in June of 2014. When I first heard this story I really liked it but I didn't feel it was all that relevant to me at the time. Not totally anyways. David does mention that his grandmother Saucy was a bit racist. That subtle sort of they're Mexican, but they can't help but sort of racist that I was used to growing up around from both my parents, although my dad was a little less subtle about it. And politics had caused me to butt heads with my mom all through the Trump administration. She'd agreed with me a couple of times regarding how bad Donald is, but for the most part would refuse to listen to any facts that would potentially change her sterling view of him and would instead listen to Fox News and conservative talk radio as her guiding light. So I had a disconnect with my mom. I had trouble talking to her as it was, but something else was going on under the surface. When my dad died, it kind of broke my codependent mom. She relied on him for pretty much everything, especially financially related. And without him, she found herself living alone in an oversized house with two overweight cats. And even though she wasn't willing to admit it, it was starting to get tough living alone with no one really observing her on a day-to-day basis. It was some time before we started seeing red flags of her having a problem with her memory. But even right up to getting that initial inkling of a diagnosis, I was doing what I could to help her out around the house, even helping her shop for a replacement car for her. And she actually drove me to the doctor's office on the day that she failed her first slums test for mental acuity. It was a week later that we received a rather callous message from her doctor, advising her not to drive anymore. What followed from that point on was nearly a year of testing and estate planning met with flagrant denial and confusion and distrust on her part in the process. In February of 2022, the same month that David's story finally aired, she was given the official diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And since then through arguments and anger, miscommunication and tears. I've had to step up and find a way to communicate constructively with her, help her get off the road and basically trick her into leaving her home of 50 years to move into an assisted living community where I knew she would be safe. I also lucked out finding a terrific contractor to help renovate the house that I grew up in, but my father probably wouldn't sink any money into for repairs in order to get it ready to rent, to help pay for her new living arrangements. And now closing 2022 with yet another curveball because of my mom not being happy in the assisted living home she's currently in. She's not a good fit. We've already booked her into what we hope is a much happier place to live in, more tailored to her interests. She moves just after the first of the year. Anyways, my... 2022 re-listen to David's story really stood out to me from the rest this year because of what I was going through. It made me try to continue to focus on the good times that we still have ahead of us. But there will be struggles, and sometimes my mom will throw a tangled mess of broken logic at me that she feels certain about while I know it to be nothing more than a hot fart in a skillet. But we can still laugh together and connect, even if that means the experience feels like something on repeat. Anyway, here's David Crabb with his touching story, Groundhog Day.
1: When I was 15 years old, my guidance counselor accidentally outed me to my father. And it was a shock to my father. I don't know how I drew Wonder Woman so much when I was little. I listened to Xanadu so many times in a row, but it was a shock. And at that point, I was a goth kid. I was literally sitting there with, like, black fingernails and a dog collar. Like, yeah, I'm gay. Um, and my dad, he seemed to accept it, but then he didn't. I don't know if any of you have come out have had this. And I had to come out to him, like, again and again. It was like Gay Groundhog Day. It was just this endless... Lou, like for two years, still gay, dad, not changing. Now, over the years, I told my whole family, they all know that I'm gay, but there's one person that I haven't come out to, and it's my grandmother, Saucy. Saucy's real name is Selma, but my little gay mouth morphed it into Saucy. Uh, um, And it caught on, everyone calls her Saucy now. Um, And it's really fitting. She is a little tiny woman with uh, bright snow white hair. She has these crystal blue eyes. Uh, she wears a bunch of really sort of like floral, tropical, colorful shirts. Those polyester slacks that, f-t, 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 you know, when she walks. And then like really comfortable, like rubber soled, like nurse shoes, like with a thick rubber. Like you'll never get electrocuted in these fucking shoes. Um, there's a thing about Saucy is that she's... Her mind's in a lot of places, you know? Like, if you go into her kitchen, she's got her advice columns, like her Dear Abby that she cuts out because she arranges those on the fridge. And then she has her other station. It's her stack of Globe magazines and examiners about, like, Bat Boy and stuff like that. She loves those. And then at the end of her table, um, she's from uh, San Antonio, Texas, and she has a pecan tree. So then she has her shucking station where she just sort of shucks pecans all day. Um, And then she's always baking a shitload of pumpkin breads. Uh, She bakes them in these huge batches these tiny breads that she wraps and then she has a freezer in the garage dedicated just to the freezing and archiving of these pumpkin breads Um, she defrosts them and gives them to people all the time and they're delicious but you never know like is this from 1993 who can fucking say it tastes delicious So, her mind is in a lot of places. Uh, I always remember um, there was one Christmas where she was wandering around the kitchen. She she was making coffee and trying to keep people entertained and, like, you know, refreshing crackers and cheese and pecans and pecans and pecans. And she walked to the table with this coffee and this big uh, container of sugar, meaning to lay them down. But instead, as she blathered onto us about something in the Globe magazine, she poured the entire carafe of coffee into the sugar. (laughs) And at that point, my aunt leaned over and she said, I love your grandmother, but she is like a fart in a hot skillet, (laughs) which I don't know what it means. But if you met Saucy, you'd be like, yeah, that's right. Just kind of (laughs) like, I don't know. It's it's like that. And I've always felt this really strong connection with my grandmother. When my dad and uh, my grandfather would go hunting, I would stare over her house. She would let me watch the Golden Girls, and then we would watch like a buttload of Quincy. She loved Quincy's back-to-back. And then uh, she would have her friend Polly come over. They would play Boggle, and she would get hammered on spiced rum and frescas. Um, and it was just a fun time. In spite of this feeling of connection with my grandmother, though, there's this thing about her in that she is... <sighs> She's like Texas racist in that sweet, charming way. There are people in in my family who are generally, they're bigoted. For real bigoted. Saucy isn't. Saucy, I always remember, like she says things like, um, I just went to Payless Shoes and the nicest chocolate woman helped me. Which is like... (laughs) Sounds like you like her, but... um, and then like four years ago, she got these new neighbors and she said, oh, David, the nicest people moved in across the street. They're Mexican. They can't help it. <laughs> um, so, so this, this one trait of hers always had me sort of a little bit concerned about coming out to her. Now. A few months ago, I went home to visit, and my dad and I took her to Jim's, her favorite diner, where she knows all the cooks in the kitchen. And they're Mexicans who work hard. She loves those hardworking Mexicans so much, she brings them uh, just a whole bag of frozen pumpkin breads. Um, and she gave the pumpkin breads to all the people, and she sat down and... She started telling this story. She tells this story over and over again about baby. That's this little deer that her mother found when she walked outside to use the bathroom. Which always reminds me how old she is. She's going to be ninety. That that was just from you know when Mama went out in the front yard to use the bathroom. Sure. Um, and she tripped on this little baby deer, and they raised the deer and on the front porch and did it. And she goes on and on. And whenever she starts telling this story, it's one of my like go to my iPhone stories. Like when under the table, I'm like, what are people Instagramming from New York? Oh yeah, the deer. Mm-hmm. And I don't pay attention. And after this loop of telling the story over and over again, we're leaving the restaurant and she says, so David, where are you living now? And I'm like, I live in New York. I've lived in New York since 1999. And it concerns me, but I just kind of let it go. Over the, the next few months, she started to get really ill and forgetful. They decided to put her in an assisted living community. And when she was there, she fell off the bed one night and she broke her back. She had to get a series of surgeries and then they put her in a full care facility And when she got there, they said she had uh, Alzheimer's and was deteriorating very quickly. So my dad is telling me all of this long distance, and I I keep telling myself that I'm prepared to visit her. I've seen Away From Her, the horrible, terrifying Julie Christie movie that makes me sob every time. I was like, I understand Alzheimer's. I'm going to be fine. So a couple months ago, I visit Texas and my dad says we're going to go to the nursing home and we drive out to Hondo, Texas, this little town, and we get there. And the first thing you see is a gate. And outside of the gate, there is like a silver number pad, like from an 80s payphone, um, written on it, 0429, like the password to get in. And even from the inside, you would be able to look through the bars and just reach and push the buttons. And I'm like, if this is the thing that keeps the people that live here inside, we're about to really deal with some special people. Do you know what I'm saying? We walk inside, and my dad immediately uh, says, I have to go to the bathroom. If you just walk, it's a U-shaped hallway, and follow it around. Now, I don't know if the people that designed these places designed them intentionally to be, like, increasingly harrowing, like, halls of horrors, (laughs) but it was like that, because when I walked in, the first people I saw were the charming older women with walkers and chili pepper earrings saying, it's a beautiful morning. You know, like those women. They're all there, just happy to be alive. And then a little bit further, and there's a guy in a wheelchair smiling. He's an eye patch. I think he winks at me. It's hard to tell. I get the feeling he is. And then uh, a little bit further, there's some people in wheelchairs, but they're not really activated. They're sort of in park, just parked against the wall. And then you hit the people that are just in gowns, sort of pacing around. And at the end of this hallway, I see Saucy. But then when I get closer to her, I realize it's not Saucy because this woman has sort of yellowed hair. She's wearing this tan shirt, and she's actually in a wheelchair. And as I get close, she looks up at me and she has these twinkling blue eyes and she just grabs for my shirt and she pulls it and she says, please get me out of here, David. I've been here since yesterday. And she'd been there for a few months at that point. And then she tells me that she needs to get home to Papa, who is my grandfather who died in 1997. So at this point, there is a Grand Prix exercise wheelchair team that literally like tears around in their wheelchairs racing, and they need by. And I am struggling to A, not cry, and B, figure out how to get a wheelchair out of park. And I finally get out of park, and I take Saucy into a room, and she starts just crying, saying, please get me out of here, please get me out of here, I need to get out of here. And right at that moment, my dad comes in, and I say, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom, which is code for I need to go out in the front yard and cry for just a little while alone. I tear through the hall of horrors in reverse and I get out into the front yard of this old age home and I like ugly cry, like Julianne Moore cry, like really mucusy, <laughs> like pinch face, like full on sob. And I take out my phone and I call my fiance and I want to tell him something, but I just say, man, and you're going in a wheelchair egg and there's words in there somewhere maybe. And he lets me cry out and he says, David, calm down, just go inside, be with sauce, you're going to be fine. So I hang up the phone and I walk back through. And the minute I walk into Saucy's room, my dad sees me and says, I need to use the bathroom, which I think is code. I want to be like, just go cry in the front yard. It'll make you feel a little bit better. And he leaves. And as I'm with Saucy, she's still muttering and she's grinding this comb against her leg in her wheelchair. And, you know, people talk about being in car accidents and how there's that moment of pure terror where it's like a whiteout and everything's like really calm and serene and slow motion. And I think I had that emotionally. Because all of a sudden I had this thought, this is the perfect time to come out to Saucy. Now hear me out, there's two options, all right? One, Saucy, I'm gay, the rest of the family knows, and I think that it's time that I tell you. And she says, you are a sinner and I can't believe you would do that and you need to go to church and repent and get out of my room. At which point I get out of a room and then I come back in five minutes later and she says, David, it's so good to see you, honey. Just dry erase it away. Um, <clears throat> and then option two, saucy. I think you should know I'm gay. The rest of my family knows. My dad knows. My friend from New York, who you like so much, is actually my fiance, and we're getting married next year. And she says, oh, sweetie, I love you so much. I'm so happy for you. Give me a hug. At which point, I realize that I get to give her that experience again and again and again. It's like the best gay groundhog day a woman could ever ask for. You know? So I turn and I look at her. And I approach the bed, and I sit down beside her, and I'm going to tell her. And for just a moment, it's silent. There's a man across the hall that stopped moaning. There's no sort of heartbeat emergency machine going off anywhere. It's just silent. And I look at her, and she's really grinding this comb into her leg. And as I go to speak, I realize that she's muttering. She's been saying something really quietly this whole time. And it occurs to me that at this point, Saucy is really not a vessel waiting to be filled with more information. Do you know what I mean? Like, she does not need anything else. She is not a sounding board. She needs to say something. So I take the comb and I put it down and I take her hand and I say, Saucy, tell me about baby. And she says, oh, baby. One morning when I was six, my mama went out in the front yard and she tripped over a rock. But then she looked back and it wasn't a rock at all. It was a little baby deer. And you know, those little baby animals, once humans touch them, Their parents reject him, so we knew we had to take this little baby in. So we raised this little deer on our porch, and she got bigger and bigger. She was just like a little dog. I remember curling up with her in the summertime. And then when she got really, really big, she could put her head through the kitchen window, and I would feed her scraps when my mama wasn't looking. Oh, it would make my mama so mad. I love that deer. In that moment, listening to her tell that story, I thought about all the times I used it as an excuse to check my phone, and I felt really bad because... In that moment, I think I could have heard her tell that story again and again in a loop forever and ever. Thank you.
3: Story that I can read Tell me a story that I believe
0: This is Risk. This is Michael Kiwanuka behind me now and we just heard from David Crab. You know, if you're out in LA, David does a lot of work with the Groundlings the legendary school and theater for improv and sketch comedy. And he's currently in their Sunday company show. So be sure to look that up at groundlings.com. And before David, we heard the song, My Body Was Made by the wonderful Ezra (laughs) Furman. We've played that song on the podcast before, but it's such a great song and hope brush suggested we use it and i thought yeah what the hell let's use it again we'll be right
3: back imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt We're back.
0: Well, that is almost all of this week's episode, folks. The last episode of 2022. This is Cheryl Ann Spencer behind me now. You know, personally, I had a lot of favorite stories and moments from this year as you probably know, live theater, even Broadway, has been through a ton of confusion, ups and downs in the past year. We had some magical moments at our live shows. I made it to Seattle and Portland, Chicago, Detroit, Reno and L.A. Those were all very memorable nights. And sometimes we had full houses and other nights. We did have, you know, smaller attendance than we were used to before the pandemic. But I was really grateful to be reminded how this show is actually just as moving and powerful with a very intimate-sized audience as it is in a room of 300. You know, uh, David Crabb and I were talking just the other day about how when people are that close, they tend to like report that they felt like it was a more powerful experience than hearing the story on the podcast, you know, when it was such an intimate experience. So we've started thinking about maybe doing some shows (laughs) in people's living rooms or backyards, you know, next year, just some more experimentation. So if you live anywhere within like, two or three hours of New York City and you have a pretty big backyard or a comfy living room or a spacious barn or patio, let us know. (laughs) You know? I mean, what the hell? It might be interesting. And, you know, it meant a lot to me that we were able to run some, you know, especially meaningful episodes this year when we ran... That episode called Protect Row on May 5th, where you could hear those remarkable stories by Liz Winstead and Jen Montooth, women who had had abortions. You know, when we see instances of people losing their rights or facing injustice in the political battles of our era... We know that hearing the stories of the people whose life experiences were affected by all that will always be crucial, no matter what. And I was so grateful to Kala Mendoza of NonviolentPeaceForce.org who is such an inspiring teacher and activist Kala trains people how to be upstanders rather than bystanders in the face of hate crimes being committed. In that case, we were talking about hate crimes being committed against Asian Americans. But, you know, Kala teaches all kinds of people how to react in all kinds of circumstances, protests and whatnot. So we featured bits of my conversation with him In all four of our Asian American Lives series that we ran this year. And we also had our our 600th episode this year, which I'm so proud of. You know, we're close to 630 now. And, you know, I, I was so grateful that our staff was so creative and resourceful this year. You guys, I don't think it's a secret. I personally have been dealing with a lot of burnout and midlife angst (laughs) and this burning desire to be doing other kinds of work, but confused about how to possibly find the time and energy and financial resources while keeping risk running when keeping risk running seems to be getting more challenging and taxing over time. But our staff, they saw that and they started reinventing all kinds of ways that we do things around here. And it's given the podcast and the live shows and the whole experience of being on this team. All this fresh and surprising and enriching innovation. And uh, I'm so, so, so grateful to our wonderful staff for, I don't know, just really coming through that way. Uh, I felt that the story, The Open Window by Taj Easton and Adarius Bell, that was, you know, it, it was such an intimate an emotional recorded conversation between Taj, who was one of our audio editors, and a very good friend of his, there was a level of vulnerability and presence between the two men in that story. I mean, it was a story slash conversation, you know, talking about being friends of different races, talking about being straight men, uh, working their way through emotions, The way that it was, both an incredibly detailed story that was shaped with all the craft of a risk story, but also a genuine improvised or off-the-cuff conversation between two friends. I was just so proud of how that turned out. And then there was the way that both Jill and Sam Carliner shared such different stories about how they dealt with their son's first year in rehab, and the way that on the Love Struck episode, Sam Dingman and Adrian Bain shared stories that connected into how they became boyfriend and girlfriend. You know, every single year I freak out about whether or not we can pull off another really jam packed Scary Stories episode for Halloween and Holidays episode for the end of December. And once again, we delivered really fantastic programming there, too. And as always, I am so, 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 so grateful to you all. You know, not just for listening and and engaging with us online, but for sending us your stories. We featured dozens of your stories this year. So be sure to keep doing that and be sure to keep sharing the podcast with your friends and if you're a therapist of any type at all, reach out to me at kevin at risk show.com. We still don't know which year <laughs> we'll be able to pursue the idea, but we'd still like to create more content around the intersection between therapy and storytelling. So have a wonderful 2023, everyone. I dearly hope that lots of good things develop for all of us in the new year. Things we've been working toward or hoping for, and then surprisingly good things we hadn't even imagined. One thing you might not have imagined, but that I can guarantee you're gonna get at the very beginning of 2023, is our Staff Picks 2 episode. (laughs) Next week, we got more staff with more picks. So happy, 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 happy new year, everyone. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. some weed has
6: embalming fluid in it. I'm really messed up. I'm not going to be sleeping in the bathroom all night again. So this, like, group of guys come over. Yo, are you okay? Take me under their arm. We're, like, bar hopping. Yo, five shots, five beers for me and my clique. Babe, I'm so sorry. We're so loud. Who's we? we're just a bunch of wolves. We're howling at the moon outside. We've had this like whirlwind night. Did you piss your pants? Don't embarrass me in front of my friends. Yo, I'm going to need one pizza for me and one pizza for the squad. Yo, you can't stay here. you got to like go. This is what we do. We're going to go back to my place and have a little pizza party. So I fire up an uber we all pile into the uber y'all play like jack Jam's volume one we get back to my apartment boys we gotta be quiet my girlfriend is sleeping we're gonna have a little bit of pizza party no big deal she's a heavy sleeper and i'll start wheeling and dealing paper plates what the fuck are you doing And that very moment, I realized that those imaginary friends were not teaching me. I was teaching those imaginary friends.